1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also would be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. You can see As we come to this portion of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 15, we've been taking a look at verse, uh, this section in verses 20 through 28. This is the last of three messages on a very important passage that has illumined for us the biblical truth about eschatology, which is the doctrine of the last things. What have we seen thus far? Very briefly. We are essentially have seen and have told in this passage the timing of the second coming of Christ. We are informed that Jesus' millennial reign, uh, when it occurs, and we have been informed of the nature and the character of that millennial kingdom in this section of Scripture. When does Jesus' second coming occur? Our text says it is at the end of the world. It is, at, as Jesus says, at the last day. No more days. After the last day. This means, therefore, that Jesus' millennial reign cannot be after his second coming. It means it has to be before his second coming. When do the dead rise? Our text says they rise on the last day, as Jesus said. And our text clearly states that his resurrection is at his coming. What happens next, according to our text? Verse 24, then comes the end. At Jesus' second coming, Jesus delivers up a conquered kingdom to his Father. Our text states that Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under him. When all his enemies are defeated, then he will return. And as verse Hebrews 10, verse 13 taught us, as we have looked at, it says that Jesus is not coming back until, as Psalm 110 predicted, until all his enemies are put under his feet. It says he is waiting until that fact occurs. When did Jesus assume his place on David's throne? as prophesied by David and by Daniel. 
Acts 2 tells us it occurred at the resurrection slash ascension slash session. Look at all those three great events as uh, one magnificent event. The resurrection, the ascension, and the session. The word session meaning the seating of the Son on the throne of David. The scripture tells us in Acts 2 that all occurred (coughs) in that event. The resurrection, ascension, and session of Jesus. That is when he sat on David's throne. That's when that prophecy of David's and of Daniel came to pass. We saw last week that the millennial reign of Jesus is filled with great spiritual conflict. What does our text tell us? He must reign until all his enemies are defeated. That means his millennial reign is filled with conflict, right? It's, it's a war. It is a spiritual war that is going on that Jesus is winning. We saw that, according to Revelation 19, we took a look at that last week, it pictures, and along with Revelation 6, it pictures Jesus riding on a white horse, going forth, conquering to conquer, according to Revelation 6. We saw that there is a direct correlation between Revelation 19 of Jesus riding on this white horse. He's got others on a white horse following him who have white linen representing the church of the Lord Jesus. We saw that there's a that correlation between Revelation 19 and Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 is one of those great messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. That, that, that the Messiah is the seed uh, or the, the stem of Jesse. He is that branch that was prophesied. And it, our text in Revelation, uh, Isaiah 11 says that with the breath of his lips, he slays the wicked. And then Isaiah 11 says, consequently, what happens? He establishes peace on earth. All that imagery of the lion laying down with the lamb, the children playing by the cobra's pit, all are picturing things that would normally be very dangerous, right? But now it's peaceful. Well, that's the effect of him slaying the wicked by the breath of his mouth. He, as the king of peace, remember Isaiah pictures that in Isaiah 9, in the birth of the Messiah, um, he is one who would bring peace. And so he does. We initially saw last week that the word of the Lord, uh, this sword coming out of his mouth at Revelation 19 pictures, is describing the preached word of God. We saw that Ephesians 6 says the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And so we saw last week as well that the Father has decreed, according to Psalm 2, to give the nations to his Son as the Son's inheritance. He says, I've established my Son on my holy mountain. I've installed my King on my holy mountain. And I've given the nations to the Son as his inheritance. And it says... 
He will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and all those who don't give homage to the Son, the Son will destroy. We saw that Daniel chapter 7 pictured one like the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days uh, to receive a kingdom. Now, it says he receives a kingdom when he comes up to the Ancient of Days. It says that when he receives that kingdom, he has been given all authority and power. Daniel says that the Son of Man was given dominion so that all peoples, all nations, and men of every language might serve him, is what Daniel 7 says. We saw that in Psalm 110, that when the Lord sits on his throne, he stretches forth his holy scepter, which is the symbol of his kingship. And with the stretching forth of that scepter, it says, Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In other words, that is how Jesus is going forth conquering to conquer. He, he is using his authority to defeat his enemies. Now, because Jesus, well, let's put it this way. In understanding the nature or the character of Jesus' millennial kingdom, we see the central role that the church plays in fulfilling Jesus' victorious reign. The church is at the center stage of the whole thing, as we're going to see today. Because Jesus is victorious, you get that picture, don't you? I hope you get that distinct picture that the seated Jesus on the throne of David at the Father's right hand is a victorious king who no one can resist. That should be obvious from all the texts that we have taken a look at. Now, because Jesus is victorious, because Jesus has all authority and power to accomplish his dominion over the nations, then his church will be victorious in carrying out Jesus' great commission. Now, this is the point of the great commission in Matthew 28, 18-20, where Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, comes to his disciples. He's not, written, not ascended yet. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, you see how verse 18 is the, is the foundation of the Great Commission. There is no success in the Great Commission apart from the fact that Jesus has all authority and power. See, the greatness of the Great Commission is that who can resist the one who has all the power? No one. And if Jesus has designated someone to be the instrument, in carrying out his mission, what is the likelihood of their success? It's guaranteed, right? It's guaranteed. I keep being amazed, you know, and I, I deliberately chose Onward Christian Soldiers. A lot of those stanzas, I hope you see a lot of those stanzas of ringing out the biblical truths that we've been preaching over the last two weeks. So, <clears throat> to see one of the great texts that establishes the church's central role in the dominion of Christ, 
we turn again to that passage in Ephesians chapter 1. So turn with me to Ephesians 1, as we look again at verses 18 through 23. Now before I look at that, I want to stress again, we've been establishing the fact that Jesus has all the authority, the nations are given to him as his rightful domain, he can carry out whatever he wishes, he will defeat all his enemies. The question is, how How is he doing that? And we're going to see then uh, Ephesians 1 is one of those other great passages that brings this out. Look at verse 18 and following. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now the incredible relationship between Christ and his church is seen in verses 22 and 23. That central relationship is seen in these two verses. Notice that the Father is said to have put all things in subjection under His feet. Now, who's the His? Jesus' feet. The Father has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. Do you see any similarity at all between this passage and, and our text in 1 Corinthians 15? It's almost identical. Almost identical. Virtually the same terminology is used here as in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice also that Ephesians 1.22 states that the Father gave him, gave Jesus that is, as head over how many things? Over all things. To who? To the church. Does not the scripture present Jesus as the head of the church? That's how the New Testament presents Christ. As the head of the church. Ephesians 1.23 specifically tells us that the church is Jesus' body, right? It says, which is his body. That phrase modifies the church, and that's an image that is common in the New Testament of the body of Christ is that which belongs, is the church, and he is the head of the body. We already went through, preached through 1 Corinthians 12. We've demonstrated that. And in this regard, did we not see when we went through 1 Corinthians 12, in that exposition, that Jesus fills the whole earth through the manifestation of the varying gifts of the Spirit? Who does Jesus give those gifts to? Men, the church. And that's how Jesus 
fills all in all for the spiritual gifts that he gives to men. Now, one of the great spiritual gifts that he gives to men, we've got to turn over to Ephesians 4 and look at verses 7 and following. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Let me just stop right there. It's describing the the work of Jesus. It, It describes his incarnation. That's his descending into the earth. Him taking on humanity. But it says he who descended is one who's, or the one who's ascended is the one who also descended. He came into this world, took our nature to himself, and when he ascended, it says he gave gifts to men. Now what happened on the day of Pentecost? And when Peter was preaching, He is quoting Psalm 110, right? And he says, This which you both see and hear is the demonstration that Jesus is Lord. He is giving gifts to men. Namely, the preacher, Peter, who's telling them this. Now, as we see, if you look down verses uh, 10 and following of Ephesians 4, it says, He who descended is himself also who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might feel all things. Does that sound familiar to Daniel 7? It ought to. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, teachers. Not all the gifts are mentioned there, but these, these gifts that are so important in the foundation of the church, which is apostle and prophet, Uh, We know that apostles and prophets are no longer with us because, as Ephesians 2 says, and we've looked at that before, those gifts set the foundation, as Ephesians 2 says, and miraculous signs were given to them. But how many foundations do you set when you build a building? One. And they were used to build the foundation. Now, On that foundation, it says a holy temple is being raised up unto God. And the gifts of evangelists and the gifts of pastors and teachers will always be needed until the end of the world for the raising up of this great spiritual temple. And so what we see here is that these evangelists, these pastors and teachers, these particular gifts are still with us, and these gifts, by the use of these gifts, Jesus is using them to subdue all the nations to himself. We saw, did we not, when we went through Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 14 and 15, it says there in that great passage that it describes the feet of the preacher as being beautiful. Why are the feet of the preachers Seen as beautiful. It actually is bringing out a passage in Isaiah where it talks about wherever that preacher goes, he is bringing the gospel of good news to the world. 
That's why his feet are is beautiful. But our text says that Jesus is preaching through his preachers. Verse 14 makes that very clear. Turn to Romans 14. I want us to be sure. I think you understand by now since we've preached through this. But it's worth seeing again. Look at verse uh, 14 of Romans 10. How? Well, first of all, verse 13 says, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As several Calvinists have said, that's one of our favorite verses. And Armenians think they, got a, they, they own that verse. They don't own that verse. We own that verse. It's true. Whoever believes in Jesus will be saved. There's nothing can't be more true than that. Well, the point here is, how are these people going to call on Jesus? Well, he tells us. Verse 14. How shall they call upon him and who may not believe? You've got to believe in somebody if you're going to be saved. You've got to believe in Jesus if you're going to be saved. And then it says, and how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Now, who's the him? Jesus. How are they going to believe in Jesus whom they have not heard? Now, that definitely tells us you have to hear Jesus preaching to call upon the name of the Lord, right? Well, how do you hear Jesus preaching? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Right there in this passage, we see Jesus linking his preachers with his preaching as one. It tells us he preaches for his preachers. And that's why verse 15 says, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Without the preacher, Jesus is not preaching. But where the preacher is, Jesus is preaching. And when you have faithful preachers preaching Jesus, guess what? People will call upon the name of the Lord. How? Freely in the day of thy power. Right? According to Psalm 110. So the primary way. That Jesus is going forth conquering to conquer, according to Revelation 6. The way he's doing that during his millennial reign, he is conquering and conquering. Jesus is slaying the wicked in his millennial reign, right? With the rod coming out of his mouth, with a sword coming out of his mouth. The sword being the word of God. And who preaches the word of God? But the preachers, Jesus' little ones. Jesus' preachers are the instruments, of, or we could say they are his instruments. They are the rod coming out of his mouth. They are his sword. It is through faithful preaching that the wicked are slain. It is through faithful preaching that Jesus stretches forth his strong scepter, and then people volunteer freely. In the day of thy power. Now, if, if the word is preached to you, does everybody believe when the word is preached to them? No. Not everybody believes. There are a lot of people, when they hear the gospel, they just clam up and say, I don't want anything to do with this. You preachers are stupid. We don't want anything to do with you. But sometimes, when that word is preached, some people 
They actually believe that gospel message. And they believe it to the saving of their souls. Now, what made the difference? The power of God is what made the difference. Would you not agree that it takes a great amount of power to raise someone physically from the dead? I mean, (laughs) Jesus, it says, was declared to be the Son of God with power when he was raised from the dead. When Lazarus was in that uh, tomb almost uh, for days, and the family says, you know, there's a lot of stench coming out. I mean, he's been dead for a while. You think it took power to bring Lazarus back from the dead? Of course it did. But what I want to convey to you today, it takes as much power to raise someone spiritually from the dead as it does to take someone rise physically from the dead. Because unless the power of God is operative, you will remain spiritually dead. Unless the power of God comes upon you, you will remain in your sins. What did Romans 1.16 call the gospel? The dunamis of God. The dynamite of God. That's where we derive the word dynamite from that Greek word dunamis. Translated the power of God. Whenever, what this is telling us, that wherever the gospel is faithfully preached, Jesus preaches through his preachers, and I'm likening to this, I am throwing sticks of dynamite out in the preaching of the gospel. Spiritual sticks of dynamite. And things happen. See, nothing is the same when a preacher preaches. Jesus made that clear, did he not? When he sent them out, his disciples out to preach. He says, when you go into the villages, those that receive you, then it'll be well for them. But those who don't, shake off the dust from your feet. Truly I say to you that Sodom and Gomorrah will be treated more favorably than they on the day of judgment. Things happen when the word is preached. Nothing is the same again, ever. You know, that, that realization helped me immensely in talking to people about Christ, because sometimes it can be intimidating to talk with non-Christians. But it helped me immensely to realize this. I remember when I was in Corpus Christi, I'd go down by the bay and talk to some people. You see people playing on the playground. I was thinking, you know, it can be a little intimidating, but here's what I reminded myself of. And this was genuine. It was a privilege for those people to have me come to them. Now, that's not self-centered. But I was bringing the good news. I didn't have to show up. But the fact I showed up, everything changed. Because nothing remains the same once the gospel is there. Because the day, I'll take a phrase from someone else, the day or the hour of decision is at hand. And when that gospel is proclaimed, you going to believe this, Jesus, I'm telling you, or not? Yes or no? Nothing the same. And, and anybody who refuses to believe in Jesus that day, and they were to die in their sins, I guarantee you that on Judgment Day, God will remind them, I sent you a preacher one day. 
I sent you a little one that you refused. And now you must perish because you refuse to believe in him who I sent and I was preaching through him because I will use my preachers. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verses 3 through 5. Now we're talking about that the church is the ordained instrument by which Jesus is subduing all his enemies under his feet. Look at verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is a spiritual war going on. We don't use physical weapons, but we do have spiritual weapons. And how powerful are these spiritual weapons? So powerful that the fortress of hell cannot withstand it. That's what it says. We are destroying all speculations raised up against what? The knowledge of God. When the gospel is brought to people, we are destroying vain speculations. We are bringing to bear to them the word of the living God. And when God sovereignly chooses to save them, he has changed an enemy to a friend, has he not? Did not our text in Ephesians 6, or 4, say that he led forth the captives when he ascended on high? We are bringing all thought obedient to the captive, to the obedience of Christ. And so what we see here, that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all, as our text in Ephesians 1 says to us. The church wields these divinely powerful weapons to assault the stronghold of Satan and bring men captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul understood that. Turn with me to Acts 26, and you'll see how Paul viewed his ministry among the Gentiles. Look at Acts 26. Now, he's recounting before King Agrippa his conversion experience. And, and in recounting this, in verse 15, Acts 26:15, Paul says, and he's quoting Jesus here, what Jesus said to him. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Jesus says, 
you are going to turn their eyes from darkness to light. Really? Through his preaching? But who is preaching through Paul? Jesus. But Jesus actually says it's Paul doing this. See how, how close that relationship is between Jesus and his preachers? And it says, they will be turned from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. We, through the use of divinely ordained weapons, are assaulting the stronghold, the dominion of Satan, and it doesn't stand a chance. That's powerful, isn't it? All those who are slaves to sin and to Satan, when they hear the gospel message, the Spirit goes forth with great power to spiritually raise them from the dead. And when they are converted, are they an enemy of Jesus anymore? What are we called in the Scripture who believe in Jesus? Friends of God. Those of us who are reconciled through Christ are said to be friends of God. James says we are no longer enemies when we believe in Jesus. And what did Psalm 110 say? That Jesus is subduing all his enemies, stretching forth his scepter, and thy people, the elect, will believe voluntarily. In the day of thy power. There's a reason why I go over all these scriptures. There's one thing I hope you see. There's a lot of unity to all these passages. That's what I'm trying to bring out to you. The unity of the word of God. That this is not an isolated truth of scripture. But this is the general pervasive thrust of scripture. And all these passages just tie in together. That's why I always like doing Bible study. It's like others like to do puzzles. Well, I like to do puzzles. I just like to do the puzzles in the Bible. (laughs) Because I like to see how everything fits. And the more I study the Bible, the more beauty of the unity of Scripture comes about. And that's no coincidence, because what does the Scripture say? Jesus is the central theme of the Bible anyway. So it all makes sense. Jesus made the statement that I believe was no coincidence in Matthew 16. And I want us to turn to Matthew 16. Turn to Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but by my Father who is in heaven. Let's stop right there. I'm not finished. If you understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of sinners, who has revealed that to you? 
Who did Jesus says revealed it to you? The Father. Through His Spirit. You don't know anything about Jesus unless God sovereignly reveals it to you. And the fact that it has to be revealed means you can't come about it through ordinary knowledge. You can't just figure it out for yourself. Peter did not figure it out for himself. Jesus says, Peter, you, you have been amazing. But it wasn't you, Peter. It was my Father who opened your eyes and revealed this glorious truth that I am the Messiah. Let's continue. And I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. Now notice, as we've already said, spiritual truth must be revealed. And this is why the gospel was called the dunamis of God, because it takes the power of God to raise men spiritually from the dead. And in verse 18... It says that Jesus would build his church. Now, where Roman Catholicism has misinterpreted this, it's not Peter as such as being the the head of the church. We know Jesus is the head of the church. What did Peter just confess? That Jesus is the Messiah. That is a... It is upon believing in Jesus that the church is built. Not a man, but the confession by which Peter says that all his disciples followed with. And he says, the gates of hell shall not overpower it. Now, I trust that you can understand gates are defensive structures, not offensive structures. Defensive structures. The picture is a fort, right? Or a citadel. Or, let's put it in the imagery of 2 Corinthians 10 that I've already put it. A fortress, right? Every fortress has some gates by which you go in. In ancient times, a lot of battles, and you've watched enough probably movies to see, that if, if they can successfully get through the gate, the city's in trouble. Now, if the gates can hold up, they might be able to hold off the enemy. you say, yeah, what about uh, sieges? You know, they just starve you out. Well, just take the imagery for what it is, all right? <laughs> if, if, your, if your gate is strong enough, then the enemy can't break through. Well, my question is, whose gates is being referred to here? Is it the church's gates? No. It's the gates of hell that will not prevail. In other words, the gates are not strong enough to resist the onslaught of the church. A good stanza in what we sang earlier brings this out. And so what we see, and, and I don't think there was any coincidence in this imagery that Jesus used. And here's why I don't think it's any coincidence. Jesus is taking something from the Abrahamic covenant and just bringing it forward, since he is the seed of Abraham, is he not? And we're going to see, is not the church the seed of Abraham? 
Turn with me to Genesis 22. Now we're going to look at verses 17 and 18. Now this, Genesis 22 is that great passage where God had commanded Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him. Remember, God had promised Abraham, through thy seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Remember, Sarah was uh, 90 years of age, was barren all her life, could not have children. Uh, I always like this phrase, Abraham says, Romans says, he was 100 years old, and Romans says, as good as dead. Is the word that it says. And so what is the likelihood of them having a child? And, and remember, Abraham says, Oh, if, if Ishmael, Ishmael can be it, God says, no, he's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be from your own body. Remember, Sarah thought that was just so funny. A 90-year-old woman, even ancient times, though they lived longer, it was obvious that was beyond childbearing years. Even from beyond, even if you could bear children, it was beyond childbearing years. But she had been barren all her life. Oh, Ishmael, no, it's through Isaac. And so, the promised seed through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. God says, Abraham, I want you to go and kill him. Sacrifice him. Prove your loyalty to me. You know the greatness and why Abraham really justly deserves to be called the father of faith. When, uh, when he was going, after a while, I think Isaac figured it out. <laughs> that he was going to be the sacrifice. But it's interesting that Abraham told his servants, you wait here, the boy and I are going up and we will return to you. Wait a minute. We are going to return to you. But God says, I want you to to sacrifice. But what does Hebrews say about Abraham? Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead. So when that knife went up, he had full intentions to kill him. And God stopped him. Now, this is the context. God says, because you have obeyed my voice now. Look at verse 17, Genesis 22. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore. Now, look at this phrase. And your seed shall possess what? The gate of their enemies. This massive seed will possess the gate of your enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The Abrahamic promise was that Abraham's seed would be so numerous and that it would be victorious over all the enemies of God. It's very obvious in this text that the seed of Abraham is on the offensive, right? Because it will possess the gate of their enemies. I hope you see that basically is just another way of saying the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. They are not powerful enough to resist. Not only is it similar to Matthew 16, 18. We see that similarity, remember, in 2 Corinthians 10 that I've already mentioned to you. With the use of our divinely ordained spiritual weapons, we are destroying fortresses. 
Does it sound like possessing the gates of your enemies? And who is possessing the gates of their enemies there? Who is destroying the stronghold of Satan in St. Corinthians 10 but the church? And who is the church? Well, let's just let the scripture define it for us. Turn with me to Galatians 3. Look at verse 16. Now the promises spoken to Abraham and to his seed, he does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Stop right there. The seed of Abraham is definitively the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise that through his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed, is it not through Jesus that all the families of the earth are blessed? Yes. Jesus is the seed, the seed of Abraham, who brings the blessing to the nations. But let's stop there. Look at, turn to verse 29 of Galatians 3. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. See, there is a singular and a plural aspect to the seed of Abraham. The seed singular is Jesus. The seed plural is all those who believe in Jesus are said to be the seed of Abraham. Is not Jesus the head of what? The church. How do you get into the church but by believing in Jesus, right? And so we see here that this whole idea of the seed of Abraham is, is Jesus and his church, of whom he is the head. And he is filling the whole earth through what? His body, the church, who feels all in all. When the church of Jesus preaches the gospel, the power of God is unleashed upon the world to save sinners. And when that gospel goes out, when... Uh, with reference to the elect of God, and here I don't want to digress that much, <clears throat> is there any chance of the elect of God not being saved? Let's ask that question. Is there any chance of the elect of God not being saved? The answer is no. Every elect person will be saved. Now, what? Now, does that mean that everybody who hears the gospel are elect? No. Not everybody who hears the gospel are elect. But remember, Jesus said in John 6, Who hears his voice? My sheep hear my voice. My sheep are his elect. And I will raise them up on the last day, Jesus says. Praise God that his elect will be brought to saving faith. And nothing can stop it. Hallelujah. Nothing can stop it. So, but it takes the power of God. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Stop right there. 
If people are not seeing the gospel message, it's because there's a veil. What is a veil? Something over your face that you can't see, right? Take the veil away and I'll see. But if you have the veil over your face, you can't see. Paul says if, if people are perishing, it's because they have this veil over the face. Well, who's put that veil over the face? Well, verse 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of what? Of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. That's why the scripture says, that the devil, it says, those who are being held captive by the devil to do his will, Second Timothy 2. Everybody who is an unbeliever is being held in bondage by the devil. You're in that citadel, right? In Second Corinthians 10, talks about You're in this fortress. You're in the devil's domain. That's why Paul says that Jesus sent him to deliver people out of what? The dominion of Satan. So these people who are unbelievers are in this fortress that the devil owns, but who will never get out of that fortress of their own power. Because are you stronger than the devil? No. And what has the devil blinded your mind of? You can't see the gospel. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ. Jesus is Lord, and ourselves is your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God said, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Even though you're in this fortress, you're under the dominion of your own sin, you're under the dominion of the devil, and you are being held bondage to it. Jesus says, all those who commit sin are slaves of the devil, and he has blinded your eyes, but all of a sudden light shines. Light shines out of darkness, and you see. Who's enabled you to see? Who took the veil away? Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Once I was blind, but now I see. You see, because of the dynamite of God, those preachers came and they threw a spiritual stick of dynamite into that fortress as it were, and the light shone, and some of those who were in captivity to the devil have been subdued and brought to the obedience of Jesus. Preaching, preaching, preaching. Paul says, we preach who? Jesus. What is the, the, the secret to all of this? The preaching of the gospel. That is what we must recover. That is what we must recover today. That is the instrument that Jesus uses this is what the Scripture has been saying to us all along. So when we storm, when the church storms the gates of hell, it storms it with the power, the dunamis of God, through the faithful preaching, 
And these hearts that are darkened in sin are delivered by the power of God through preaching. I want to end by giving you an illustration of one of the great preachers of the 19th century in America, Daniel Baker. It's featured in the book coming out on preaching in the victory of gospel. This is just one instance of the power of the gospel. I'm just going to read to you the excerpt out of that book. The book's called Making Many Glad. It was done by his son, William Baker, but it was an autobiography as well by Daniel Baker. His son sort of just brought it all together. Here's the incident which happened. There is one instance in which he was the means of the instantaneous conviction and we trust the true conversion of one who habitually and openly ridiculed the religion of Jesus and his people. Dr. Baker had been preaching at the place referred to for several days, and a revival of religion followed. The mocker of all that is holy went to the meeting on the purpose to seek for something to which he might deride him, that is, Baker. And those who were with them led to see their danger and to fly to the rock of ages for safety under his powerful preaching. The services of the day had commenced when he entered the church, referring to this skeptic. He took his seat in the front of the pulpit. All was silence, save the voice of the preacher proclaiming the conditions of eternal life to that dying assembly and the groans that would now and then escape from some agonizing penitent. It seemed that that was indeed the house of God, and that the Holy Spirit was there working in the hearts of the people. The engaging manner of Dr. Baker soon attracted and riveted his attention, that is the skeptic. The awful truths preached that day soon aroused his sleeping conscience and convinced him of sin. His hard heart was softened, and the stern, the notorious scoffer, was subdued to tears. The man of God descended from the sacred desk, meaning he came out of the pulpit, and showed him. He entered into the conversation with the weeping man and showed him that if he only would repent and come to Christ, he would forgive all his sins and save him. He, who had always been before, left the house of worship with the sneer of derision on his proud lips, on that day left a humble penitent, weeping aloud as he rode away. He found peace in the wounds of a sacrificed Savior, became a minister of the gospel in the Baptist denomination, led a consistent and useful Christian life, and from that day forward found his greatest delight in the fellowship of those whom he had once despised. What can you say? The skeptic, subdued at last by what? The dynamite of God. That Holy Spirit took that preached word and just penetrated his heart. Just like Hebrews 4 says, that word that will penetrate to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The, the Spirit of God took Daniel Baker's preaching and just drove that sword to the heart of that skeptic. And his eyes were open, 
And he was led captive to the obedience of Christ that day. Brethren, that story can be mentioned numerous times under other circumstances. The power of God is the gospel of God. Jesus is not coming back until he has subdued all his enemies. And he is reigning right now, bringing all his enemies under his feet. And he has ordained to use us, the church, as the means to take that gospel into a dying world. That's why you and I need to just stay the course. I get frustrated all the time, believe me, that we don't grow more than we are. I don't know the purposes of God, but I know this. Stay the course and pray and pray that God will have mercy upon us. Those are the divine weapons that will storm the gates of hell. Prayer and preaching. That is what will save America. That's what will save the world. That's what we got to unite for, believe in, despite what we see. Forget about what we see, believe the promise of God, stay the course, and pray. God have mercy. God have mercy. Open the eyes of the unbelievers. Open their eyes. Help us to bring the truth to them. Let us pray.